0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We turn our attention back to Acts chapter 7. I don't know if we'll get through this today or not. I wrote it, and I was supposed to uh, cover for Matt Miller, and he was ill, and So I wrote it with the intention of preaching it up there and down here. And then that was well enough to preach. So um, depending on how this goes, it will be a single sermon or a two-parter. But we're back in Acts chapter 7. Again, that's page 98 in the back of your Bible if you're using the Pew Bible. It was back in April, not February as the notes say, but April that we last were in this book. And so I want to give you a quick reminder of where we left I want to read for you in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to verse 60, to the end, in other words. Stephen says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless his word. We have in this passage is the story of Stephen and his death. Stephen was a godly man. He had been chosen by the people of the church to help resolve a key controversy back in the early parts of Acts chapter six. The scripture describes him as a man who is godly. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He was also, though, a teacher and an evangelist. And so at the end of Acts chapter 6, you find him teaching and preaching about Jesus Christ while also performing miracles and signs. And so this was a unique man. Not everyone did those things, but he was able to do them. But the result of him preaching was that he was preaching about Jesus as being the Christ, the one promised in the scripture to be the one who would save Israel. He had come, and he is being declared as the one that they are to believe. And as he preaches this, tension arises, and those who were hearing him became angry, and they began to spread lies about him. And so he's brought before the council of religious leaders to give an account. And in chapter 7, what we have is his speech when they tell him, make your defense. And what then occurs is actually the longest recorded sermon or speech, however you wish to see that, in the book of Acts. It is in fact a masterful message that is surprisingly not specifically about Jesus Christ. In fact, there are actually two main themes in his speech. The first is that God has faithfully given Israel faithful prophets or teachers to point them to God and to sustain them. That's the first point. The second point is that Israel, in turn, rejects those prophets and teachers and turns instead to idols, even turning good things into idols. This is a man who is actually speaking like Christian men ought to speak. There's a sense of boldness about him, a a sense of burden for truth. He is not like so many today in the church who are so concerned with nuance and winsomeness that they never actually say what needs to be said. He knew who he was dealing with. He knew that they were not men who wanted to know or to understand. They had closed their ears to the truth. They had set their hearts toward their false gods. And so he told them just those very facts. In verse 39, he says, Like their fathers before, they were unwilling to follow Yahweh, their Savior. They sought life elsewhere, and so in verse 52, he reminds them of the long history of Israel resisting, hating, persecuting the prophets, not the false ones, but those sent by God to call them back to the living God, and their response time after time was to kill them. And then when the time came, in the fullness of time, as the Bible says, when God sent forth his son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Israel did not receive him, but they killed him on the cross. But as we know, who they killed, God raised from the dead. And this is exactly what they do now to Stephen. Stephen is now preaching, having seen the risen Lord and knowing of the risen Lord and believing in the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. He is proclaiming to Israelites, come, hear, see, believe, repent, turn, be saved. And instead what they do is they take him, they drag him out of the city gates, stones are picked up, they are thrown with all their might against his body and head and what happens is another faithful believer enters into the presence of his safe Savior where he is safe forevermore. But what you also see in this passage is Christianity. You see true Christianity on display, maybe not in ways that you thought about though. What you see in this passage is the power of the Holy Spirit doing what the Spirit does, convicting people. And you see that in verse 54. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were cut to the very core of their being. They were laid open, if you will. And they could not bear it. They began to gnash their teeth. Do you realize how angry you must be to get to the point that you're gnashing your teeth at somebody? This is not mild irritation and annoyance. This is a person who has been cut to the core and shown for what he is, and he hates you for it. This is what the Spirit does. Make no mistake, this is not irritation. This is not men taking offense for no reason or because Stefan chose to be a jerk. This is the effect of speaking truth to men who actually love their lies. In chapter 6, verse 15, we see that his face is described as that of an angel. What does that mean? Well, it's glowing, it's shining. It's glowing with power. It's reminiscent of Moses when he encountered the living God with a burning bush, and he asked him, show me your glory, and he passed by, and he saw just the back end of his glory, and even that caused his face to shine. In verse 55 of chapter 7, at the end we see that he's full of the Holy Spirit. They're really describing the same thing, that he was so empowered by the Spirit in such a unique way that he literally is shining. And when he speaks, his words were not his own. They actually were being borne along in the power and the will of God. And one of the main works of the Holy Spirit is to take truth, his truth, and to use it to cut open people, to cut open the hearts of mankind, and that is what you see here. Truth, truth on display, and truth, beloved, is brutal to those who hate it. For the one who seeks to know it, they find life, John Chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But truth also binds you. If truth does not set you free, then all it will do is bind you, and it will hold the rebel captive. In fact, that passage in John 8, what most people don't know because they use that verse out of context... Is that it's actually about the Jewish re- religious leaders rejecting Jesus, rejecting who he is and what he is saying, that he is speaking truth about who he is and what they must be and do and what God has done, his father. They're rejecting it, and he is the truth. And so instead of becoming free through Jesus, they remain captive, slaves to sin, and children of God's eternal wrath. That's what truth does. It's brutal to those who hate it, but it's also brutal to those who love it. The Bible is described as being a living and active thing, sharper than a two-edged sword, something that's able to pierce into the very core of your being, and you, if you are a Christian, have discovered that, where sometimes you are simply... Reading or hearing a message or something along those lines, and and all of a sudden you are laid bare, and you see yourself for what you are, and things that must change. The Spirit uses the Word of God to cut away the lies that you and I will tell ourselves. The lies we'll tell others, and it leaves us only with what is true, and it hurts. At times, it hurts very badly. But if you love Jesus Christ, then you love truth. And so you learn to embrace that pain, and you learn to embrace that hurt as it shows you what must be done. But it also has a way of becoming then a balm to your soul and your pain. Because you also know, because you know the truth, that in all of your failings, and as the word lays you bare, that you are reminded that Christ has borne all of those sins away. He took them on himself. And so as he lays you bare through the power of the Spirit in the truth or the word, he also then tells you, fight these things, put away these things, put to death these things in your life. But what he is asking you to do is not fight so as to be forgiven, but fight because you have already been forgiven. The Holy Spirit then takes you and and makes you alive in a way that nothing in all of creation can do. And that's what you have in this passage. You just see the expression of the Spirit having made a man who was dead in his sins now alive, and it changes him. It changes you. If you are a genuine Christian, you are different. Nothing in creation, no 12-step program, no hard effort can ever do what only the Spirit can do in making you new. These changes occur in your life and they make you like Stefan. because God never takes a, re- a sinner and reforms him. God never takes a sinner and lifts him up and dusts him off a bit and then pats him on the back and say, okay, now go try harder. God takes a man, a woman dead in their sin and makes him alive in Jesus Christ. He makes him new so that the old things have passed away. No longer does he participate or dwell within this age that is passing away that we've talked about recently. He doesn't belong there anymore. He has new desires, new yearnings, new goals, new agendas. And so it's never hard to know a person who's a Christian because they're different. Very seldom am I encouraged when I ask a person, "Do you think they're a Christian?" And the person says, "Well, I think so." And you're like, "Why do you? Why are you so vague?" Well, they say they are, but do you see Christ in them? Do you see? the Spirit in them? Do you see the effects of the Word of God in them? Have they been made new? The Christian faith is brutal in that way. They have a different hope, a different goal. Their demeanor actually begins to change, and their outlook on life is different because it's not locked into this age anymore. They, they know it's passing away. And as this occurs, they find that though people may hate or even resent them for their new hope and faith, that they don't hate back. Something strange is happening to them. They begin to love their enemy, pray for their enemy, forgive their enemy. Not quite sure how that works. And in fact, at times they lie in bed and wonder what's happening to them. Why is it that they are having pity and sorrow? Why does their heart break, even though insults are being maybe hurled at them? What is going on in their life? The Spirit is going on in their life. A new life has begun, and they're just different. This is all that's happening here in Acts 7. Why is it happening because they have a new spirit in their hearts. And that's what we see with Stephan in the final verse of the chapter, that with a loud voice, a voice that would, he he doesn't whisper this. Notice this in the very last verse. He doesn't whisper it. It's not his private little prayer to the Lord. He yells it at the top of his lungs so that all who are stoning him can hear him. He asks that they be forgiven. And that, Little sentence was his last sermon he would ever preach. And my, what a sermon that is. And then we see in that, one other aspect of the Christian faith, that death is different. Having said this, Luke records he fell asleep. He didn't die. He did, and our perspective, perhaps, but not in reality. He he fell asleep. The Bible describes the death of the believer as being asleep, not their spirit. It's clear that the spirit of each of us will go into the presence of our Lord and Savior. We're brought into his presence immediately, but the spirit, though alive, the body rests. It rests until the day it is raised again on the day of resurrection, and when it's finally made new and joined with the Spirit, so that you, in the wholeness of you as a human, again will dwell with God in all eternity, now finally as man was designed to be, not as we are right now. Do you ever feel like you're schizophrenic? You ever feel like it's, you have these two opposing things that in you? The Bible describes that as your flesh, not, not, not the physical stuff of your body, but the flesh, the, the hangover for the Christian. It's this hangover of their sin nature that's been killed. The spirit is now made alive and being conformed into the image of Christ, but we still dwell in this age and we stumble, we struggle, we fail. And we're always at this state of unease because this is a, a realm, an age we don't belong to. And you get so tired, don't you? Well, I hope. Sometimes you just get sick of it all. Sometimes you just want it to stop. Have you ever had those bad days in your life where? You're just counting the time where you can finally just go home and go to bed, right? I just want to go to bed. I want rest. And that is what death is to the believer. You get to go to bed and rest while your spirit dwells in the presence of your Lord. Death is that enemy of all people. And as a result, we're slaves to it because death, the Bible says, is due to sin. So there then becomes a fear of death, a fleeing from death. But for the Christian, it's no longer a true enemy, for for when the body dies, it's not the end. Because standing there at the very precipice of death is your Savior. And he bids you to come. He, the one who redeemed you from sin, brings you into his presence forevermore. And that's what the Spirit gives to each believer, a solid, an unshakable hope that they have true, eternal life. And that, beloved, is found in what the gospel promises. It's found only in Jesus Christ, nothing else. No other name given under heaven by which man might be saved. His death on the cross on our behalf for sin. His his resurrection from the dead. Securing life for all who are his. His power. His glory. Overcoming all the enemies that you and I face. He never calls you to carry your way and earn your way into heaven. We're not called to live in a servile fear that we may not make it. We simply place our hope and trust in God's man, Jesus, our Savior, who did it all. And now in that freedom and life, we are now given the freedom to walk in his footsteps. And that, beloved, is where the rub comes in. Having been forgiven and brought into life, made anew by the Spirit of God, redeemed out of our sins, adopted into the household of God, loved in ways that we don't even grasp to this moment, we are then called to follow him. And that's the focus of actually this sermon, where following Jesus can lead. So turn, if you would, to John. I didn't write down the page number there, but if you just go backwards, if you have the pew Bible, just a few pages, to John chapter 15. Pretty sure we'll be doing two sermons. In John chapter 15. I want you to see what Jesus says. In verse 17, he says, This I commanded you, that you love one another. Well, why? Well, if the world hates you, you know that's hated me before it hated you, which is one of the reasons why the church needs one another, why you need to be in community, in relationship to each other. You need to gather together and encourage each other because you don't have friends outside of this body. And I mean the body in the largest sense, outside of the church. You may think you do, but you don't have friends outside this church. The church of Jesus Christ is your family. They may be friendly to you, but they're not your friend. He says, if the world hates you, you know. Notice that you know. It literally is an imperative. He's not saying you know that's hated. He commands you to know this. He says, I command you to know that if the world hates you, it first hated me. He says, that is your job to know this. The world will hate you because it hates me. The presumption is that the world will hate you. If you were of the world the world would love its own. And because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, remember that the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, Not they may do. He's speaking to his disciples. He knows their end. He knows what every one of those apostles will become. And that is martyrs. All these things they will do to you. Why? Because you're a jerk? Because you're unkind? No. For my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for the sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I did, had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the helper comes, this is the spirit. When the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also because you have seen me from the beginning. There are times in our lives, of great peace and great rest for the church of Jesus Christ. But in reality, beloved, those are rare, very rare in history. The norm is persecution. The norm is hardship and suffering. And this persecution is what's becoming more and more normal in the American church, and therefore I believe it is wise for you and I to see it, And understand it. Jesus says, you are expected to know this. No excuse. And you'll find that consistently throughout the scripture, the presumption is that you should know this. And part of the issue there becomes our willingness to follow him in that time, to follow in the footsteps of our Lord when those days come, and we'll see why in a bit. What I want to do today, and like I said, we're already halfway through my time, is give you four principles, and we'll just look at two, I suspect in relationship to persecution and actual martyrdom martyrdom is being killed because you are a Christian that might help you begin to think about what it means to follow Jesus to understand better what is happening around you because i think that some of you are finding yourself getting wound up some of you are becoming afraid some of you are becoming bitter Some of you have made certain decisions in your life as to how you're going to handle this if it comes your way, and I want you to think wisely and seriously about what God has ordained as the norm, not the exception, the norm for the Christian. So my first principle, this is just a basic theology of martyrdom. The first principle is that God has ordained persecution and death in conjunction with the gospel. God has ordained persecution and death in conjunction with the gospel. If you uh, didn't know, I have a basic outline of my sermon on the app, and you can have that so you don't have to write it out. On page 8 in the New Testament part of your Bible, or Matthew chapter 10, our first passage I want us to take a look at Matthew 10:22 again. You have your Pew Bible divided into Old Testament and New, so go to the back and find page 8. Just note Again, the certainty of the words of Christ. He said, you will be hated by all. Notice how broad that is. Not by a few, but by all. He said, you will be hated by all on account of my name. But, if you were a one given to writing in your Bible, I would circle that or double, triple, underline it. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be what? Saved, delivered. In other words, all of the things I said at the very beginning are true, But in that, one of the marks of one having been made anew by the Holy Spirit is the endurance to the end. The Bible talks about this in various ways. In theology, we describe this as the teaching or doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That those whom God has begun a work, he will bring it to its completion and bring you safely through to the end. From God's perspective, that's very obvious who these people are. He knows. He knows who he redeemed. But from our perspective, it's not always so clear. How many of you have seen, without showing me a hand, but just how many of you have seen people who have made that profession, I follow Christ, I love Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm saved, I got baptized, I joined the church, I did this, I did that, and they're nowhere to be found. With the greatest of ease for some passing pleasure or desire or fear, they walk away. It's common, very common. So he promises that you will be hated because you're a Christian. That's just a given. So accept it and understand that connection with the gospel, that if you're going to claim Christ, then that's just the way it is. So some of you who are holding off on telling somebody about Jesus Christ because you're waiting for the right time, there is no right time. There just isn't. And it's time for you to just accept that. It doesn't mean you then turn into a cudgel and just start whomping them on the head, but at some point you have to just simply declare to them what is true and accept the fact that they're not going to like it. And that, beloved, is where you and I become laid bare by the Spirit. Because even now, some of you, I fear, are thinking, I'll lose my friend. And you may. And you count the cost. And you say, it's not worth it. And then the Spirit says, then are you even in Christ, it's not a game. All of those efforts to say, well, we need to be nuanced, we need to be winsome, I have no problem with that. I understand theoretically what that is saying. I would tell you the same, that you don't have to just run up to some guy, grab him by the shirt, and say, you need Jesus. But at some point, that's what you have to say. <laughs> and, and it's okay if they look at you weird. You actually might be surprised at how many times they'll actually talk to you. But you are going to be hated on account of his name. It is just part and parcel of the gospel. And it has a winnowing effect Because there are those who will not do it, and they will fall away, and they will not endure, and you will find them on the ash heap where they've gone away, and they're pierced with all sorts of sorrow. They're like Judas, performing miracles even with Jesus, going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God and seeing people believe that, that he he casting out demons. Don't think that Judas wasn't doing those things. He was out there doing it with the other disciples, coming back excited, Jesus, Jesus, these things happen, these things happen. Look, look. And where is he today? For all eternity is in hell. For when it came time, and he started to watch his Savior not go and ascend to the throne, but to go and ascend on a cross, he turned away, he betrayed him, and then he committed his own suicide. In First Peter chapter 4, we literally read this today in the Lord's Supper, I believe. On page 182, if you're not sure again where that's at, First Peter chapter 4, 12 through 14. Now remember, he says that you are commanded to know that you will be hated for his namesake, right? He commands you to know that, which is why now Peter picks that up here. He said, beloved. So he, he starts out Kind. It was Peter who taught me to say beloved to you all. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He's like, okay, guys, don't be surprised by this. Which comes upon you, but for what purpose? For your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. For what purpose? So that, so there that that rejoicing has a way of helping you endure. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 10. He who endures to the end shall be what? Say, so how are we going to endure? Well, one of the ways is as we are sharing in his sufferings, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that at the end, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Then, just in case you didn't follow that, he says, if you're reviled for what? The name of Christ... In fact, you are blessed. Why? And here we see the Spirit again in all of this. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, note note back in verse 4. Go back into verse 4 of this same chapter. We see the term surprised used again. In all of this, they, the unbeliever, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And so what they do is they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. That's what every true Christian discovers, is it not? Rather quickly in your life if you have been truly saved. Everything has changed and you don't fit very well, do you? Have you found that where you just, your job, your relationships, your, your humor, the TV shows, have you, for the young Christian who then turns on Netflix and they start reading, watching the, or looking at the recently watched and maybe that distaste, it's like, what was I thinking? where things just begin to pass away, where you're like, I don't want this anymore. This is wrong. There comes a point where you'll even try hard to swallow it, so to speak. You'll try hard to to hold on to it because it's, it's part of who you are. And at some point, you, it just you become so filled with distaste over it that you're like, no. No. Everything's changed. No longer do you fit with your former life and therefore your former companions and what happens is that they invite you then to be part of their life like you used to because you used to do these things with them in fact maybe you were the one to introduced them to these things and you retreat and you reject it and at first what they are is they're surprised they're confused what's what's going on with you. Have you ever had that? Where they're asking what's going on, what what's so different, and then you try to tell them Oh, she got religion. Give it time and it turns to anger, doesn't it? It Turns to hatred, it turns to persecution. And Peter says, don't be surprised. The world will be surprised at you because you're not doing the things you used to do. You, in return, don't be surprised when ugly comes on you because you're now different. Because your hope does not rest in you. It's not you trying to do enough good works to make it into heaven or anything else. It rests in Jesus. And when it comes and you identify yourself solely with the person of Jesus and his work, he says, don't be surprised. Instead, he tells you in this passage, our joy is to be in relationship to the what? To the degree you suffer. So let me give you a basic question here, and I want you to try to answer it. It's not a hard one. Who in this room should be the most Rejoice, rejoicing. According to that passage, who should be the most rejoicing in this room? The one who is suffering the greatest. Is that not counter to American Christianity? Is that not the lie of the prosperity gospel that says, God blesses you only in making you healthy and wealthy? Is that not the lie that you and I say, that we only describe the blessings of God in that which benefits us in the here and now? And yet, Paul, or rather Peter, says, no, to the degree you suffer, rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. So the one who suffers little will actually have less genuine joy. You might have giggles. You might have smiles. You might have pleasant memories, but joy makes you rethink maybe what Jesus meant when he said that he has come to give you joy, joy abundantly. Oh, you mean you're going to make me suffer? Yes. Oh. Oh. Not because you're a troublesome meddler, right? Not because you're, you're a thief, a liar, but because you love Jesus. You follow Jesus. Jesus. And he says, rejoice. In that degree that you suffer, rejoice. And he says that our joy is somehow tied to the suffering on behalf of our Lord. That we share, share in his sufferings. Which is nice to know because it means you're not alone in this mess. You look over and he's like, I'm here. And you are now in fellowship with me in a way that you weren't before. You shared in his death. You shared in his life. You shared in his uh, sinlessness because we now are partakers of his righteousness, right? He imputes us. Remember that sermon where he takes your sin and puts it upon him? And then he takes his righteousness and places it on you so that you, even though you as a sinner are still a sinner, you have the righteousness of Christ on you, right? So we, we are sharers. We have fellowship in those things. We like those things. But also along with that, he says, now you're going to share in my suffering. That's all part of what it means to follow Jesus. This is utter madness to anyone in this room who is not a Christian. This is not some empty joy that comes and goes with the wind. It's a joy that is born deep within you through the Holy Spirit, a joy that comes from a love of Jesus Christ who went before every one of us. And that's what's going on in verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's not a joy we manufacture. Rather, it's a joy that God produces with His Spirit in us. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, you may recall this, they were taken before that same religious council, they were said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Of course, they're not going to do that. And then they have all the apostles beaten before they're let go. What did they say? We're going to go home. We're going to get our weapons. We're going to... No. They all walk out, and you know what they're doing? They're rejoicing with one another. That they had been considered worthy to suffer... For his name. And then they go and preach and teach Jesus Christ. So they ramp it up. Now they got this poor guy named Stefan. And they lie about him. And they set him up. And all he had to do was say, no, no, no. I'm not saying those things. No, no. And he could have soft shoot it. He could have talked so careful, but he calls them, and he says, this is what's going on, and this is what you've done, and this is what you are. And they drag him out, and they decide, well, fine, we'll ramp it up another notch, and they take up rocks, and they crush them. And the only thing he will do to them is cry out on their behalf that they be forgiven. Some of you here lack joy. Let me let me ask you a hard question. At least it may be hard. You lack joy, but have you never considered that it might be due to the fact that you're afraid of suffering with Jesus? Have you ever thought that the reason you're not filled with joy is because you don't want to suffer? for the name of Christ. We can spend the rest of our lives telling each other, pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so, and never open our mouths because we're afraid. You are commanded to know by your Lord that you will be hated for his namesake. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. You are commanded to know that you are not to be surprised when suffering comes upon you. And to the degree that you suffer, you are to rejoice. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's page 166. 2 Timothy three twelve. Now, 2 Timothy is an important book, probably the most emotional book I've ever preached through. I, I found myself frequently fighting back tears as I both studied it and preached it, because it's the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. You'll remember he's, uh, those of you that were there perhaps, you'll remember that he is now in a subterranean prison tied or chained to a post. The sewer waters flow through this. As the tide rises and falls, it will wash out the sewers that he's sitting in. He's chained to the post. All of the men that he knew, the men that he had discipled, the men he had shared Christ with, talked about, struggled with, instructed, prayed over, prayed for, they've abandoned them all. He's alone. From an American Christian perspective, he is a failure. He's chained, he's writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. His only wish is bring me my cloak, my books, and my Bible. All have abandoned me. And he is telling this beloved man of his his desires for Timothy to stand firm. His head's gonna be separated from his body soon and he just throughout this thing you can see the emotion he has no more time to say any words that are empty at all he he this is it this is his last time with his ability to speak to this man and he writes these things and he says indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus what will be persecuted Then, what does that mean if you're not being persecuted? That's my question. What does it mean? And I'm not saying that it's being drugged out and stoned. But have you made yourself known in a gentle, spirit-filled way where it shows that love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, and self-control? That sort of a spirit indwelt, spirit-empowered attitude where you are first and foremost known for Christ. You bear the banner of Christ. You're a Christian. He says, if you're going to live godly, you're just going to do it. Some of you right now, you're wondering, what should I do? I got this situation rising up. I got that thing going on. I don't know which way. Be godly. I don't know what that means. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I've been doing this long enough to know this. You... For the most part, you almost always will know what's the right thing to do. That's never the issue. When you come to me and you ask for my counsel, and I've done this untold number of times, people come for my counsel and they say, Pastor, here's the situation. I don't know what to do. And I'll say, so what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Very seldom will I get a blank look like, I don't know. What are you thinking? Well, I don't know, I'm thinking this and this, but then I think about this and then, but I say, what do you think is the right thing to do? And that's where I see the struggle. And the struggle is not, I don't know what the right thing to do is. It's that you know what the right thing is, and you know it's going to cost you. That's the issue. A godly man, a godly woman is one who is first and foremost always concerned about the glory of God. You may mess up. You may make stupid mistakes that 10, 15 years later on you look back and you're like, yeah, that was dumb. And yet you can hold your head up because though it was not as wise as it could have been, It was still honoring to the Lord because the motivation behind it was honoring him. I I, I mean, I'm I'm no different from you. I've I've done a score of things over my life. And there are things in the past that I realized, no, that, that, that should have been done better. But I know that my intention, my desire was to honor the Lord in it. And the Lord honors that. He's so kind to us. He's so kind. But if you do that, when, you, when, when your first question is not what will make my wife happy, what will fix my marriage, what will make me get the promotion, what will, what will, what will, what will, it's what will honor the Lord. How am I honoring the Lord in this? And you start working from that perspective. How is the gospel of Jesus Christ working this? How is the idea that I am not of this age, but the age to come, that I'm not to store up my treasures here, but there, on and on and on. on? Just the things you know, the decisions will be easy. The hard part is then counting the cost and saying, we're going to do it. But what you find is you say, well, I'm waiting for God to just strengthen me. And, and Matt and I have talked about, Matt Miller and I, we've talked about this time and time again, how God will not bless that. You're waiting in, until like he like knocks you over and pushes you out and volunteers you. He's given you what you're to do in the word. You will know it. You hear it. You understand it. And now you're expected to obey. And at times the path is so clear and your confidence is there. And other times it's frightening. It's frightening because you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. But you will find that as you step forward, that the Lord will just keep placing stepping stones just as your foot goes down. He never leaves you out to hang to dry. He never fails you. Do you think Stefan thought he was being failed? Do you think that, that somehow Stephen is shaking his fist at God and say, how dare you? Look at me, I'm having stones wreck my body and crush my brain. You failed me? No. But the stepping stone that the father had for him was that. And it was good. And it was right. You desire to live godly, then accept it. Just accept it, and you'll find that God will be kind to you. Not maybe in the way you want. Notice in verse, hang on, I got to find my place, verse 12. So verse 13, he says, they will be persecuted, but evil men, imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving, being deceived. In other words, what is happening here is that as this persecution, in the midst of this persecution, as you are suffering because you're doing godly things, deception is going to abound, not with you, but with those around you, the ones doing it. What will happen is God will use your godliness to confirm them in their lies, just like the false prophets to Israel who prophesied peace when there was no peace, so too the evil men in the church will be prophesying peace when there is no peace and they'll be telling you you're doing something wrong and he's telling you don't be fooled by it. Don't buy into the lies of the evil ones who are telling you run from these things. He says you're you're being godly, you're being persecuted because you're being godly. The evil ones are gonna say what they're gonna say So you, in verse 14, what? Continue. You see what I'm saying? The liars will tell you, get out of there. Get out. Stop. And he says, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. If you could just know the emotion that's in those words. The things you learn, knowing from whom you learn. Your mom, your grandma, and me. You know them. The liars will come, and they'll tell you other things. Listen to your grandma. Listen to your mom, because he had no believing father. And listen to me. And continue. Don't fear. Don't run. Don't hate. Just continue in godliness. Well, we're out of time. Not all of you will be seven. Very likely, none of you will. But all of you in this room who truly love Christ, who will walk in obedience to him, will suffer. The command is simple. You share in his sufferings. Therefore, to the degree that you suffer, rejoice. We'll pick this up by God's grace in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. So Holy Father, as we go about our day, I pray that a sense of sobriety will be upon us for those here who are trying to understand what does it mean to be a Christian, that they'll see that the way of the Christian is not, or the way of salvation is not through suffering. It's found in Jesus, what Jesus did, who Jesus is, but the way of following Christ will bring it. Open our eyes to this, Father. Lay us open. In the ways that we have been afraid, let us be a people who are different than this world, that we fear our Lord and not this age. The Spirit alone can do that in us, so Father, we ask that you do that. Bring the word to bear in our hearts, encourage our hearts as we are walking and feel like we are going to faint. Bless these people. In your Son's holy name, Amen.